Good morning. My name is Esther. Good morning. I always love being up here and getting to look into God's Word with you all. So yesterday was Coronation Day. King Charles III was crowned King of the UK in an elaborate ceremony, codenamed Operation Golden Orb, apparently, (laughs) and replete with a gold coach and a royal scepter containing the largest colorless cut diamond in the world. There was a parade of 150 Cavalier King Charles Spaniels. Lovely, I know. So whatever you may think of the modern-day monarchy, the ascension of a king has historically been cause for ceremony, and this was no different in biblical times. Today, we are in the last week of a two-week series on Psalm 110, a text that was written by David to be read at a coronation ceremony. It contains two prophecies, prophecies that are so important that this psalm becomes the Old Testament passage that is most quoted in the New Testament. Let's begin by reading the text together with those two prophecies highlighted. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So last week, we talked about the first prophecy, which is about a king, a king who points to Jesus, who rules from a powerful position at God's right hand. Today, we'll focus on the second prophecy, which is about a priest. Verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This king will also be a priest. Now, this would have been a complete shocker to David's audience. According to the law of Moses, which had been given centuries ago, a priest couldn't be a king, and a king couldn't be a priest. In fact, the first king of Israel, Saul, was destroyed because he tried to mix up those two roles. So why in the world is David, who's fully aware of all that, saying the king will be a priest? And who is Melchizedek? That's what we'll look at today. First, we'll unpack the mysterious Melchizedek and look at two things he shows us about Jesus as priest. Then we'll look at two practical ways we can live as priests today. So first, the mysterious Melchizedek. The problem with biblical priesthood is that for many of us, it feels like an archaic and outdated concept. We think of Aaron and his descendants, who were the Israelite priests, offering animal sacrifices. Then Jesus died for us. We have no more need for sacrifices. Yay, the end. And that was a three-minute, four-minute sermon, maybe a record. (laughs) But the point is, priesthood seems kind of like a box that Jesus checked off. It's over and done with. We don't need priests anymore now, so what does it have to do with us? 
If David had referred to Aaron in Psalm 110, then maybe that's how the sermon would have gone. And that's really who David should have referred to. Because just like David was the established line of kings in Israel, Aaron was the established line of priests. But David doesn't refer to Aaron, he refers to Melchizedek. So who is this guy? Last week I was talking with Jake Dodson, one of our pastors, about Melchizedek. It wasn't by accident, I had brought it up. (laughs) And he said, you know who Melchizedek is like? He's like Shane. Have you guys seen that movie? It's an old Western. I haven't seen it, but I have read almost every single Jack Reacher novel, and Jack Reacher is supposedly patterned after heroes in the old Westerns. In these movies or novels, you know, you have this small town that's having some problem, then out of nowhere, this hero shows up. He doesn't say much. He fixes the problem, usually by shooting up the bad guys, and then he disappears. Melchizedek is like that. Other than this mention in Psalm 110, he shows up for all of three verses in the Old Testament. And if you took out those three verses, it really wouldn't change the story going on in the chapter either. It's almost like he's just stuck in there. He pops up and then he ghosts. Let's read those three verses in Genesis chapter 14. So Abraham has just come back victorious from a risky battle and suddenly this guy appears. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. We never hear about him again. Everything we know about Melchizedek is right here in these verses. Melchizedek's name literally means king of righteousness. Melchi means king and Zedek means righteousness. We're told he is the king of Salem. That's short for Jerusalem, which later becomes the capital of the Israelite kingdom and the location of the temple. The word Salem also means the same thing as shalom or peace. So Melchizedek is a literal king of Jerusalem and a symbolic king of righteousness and peace. We're also told he is a priest of God, so he's the exception to the rule that kings can't be priests. In fact, Melchizedek is the first person in the Bible to be called a priest. What does he do as a priest? First, he brings God to Abraham. He mediates God's blessing to Abraham when he says, blessed be Abram by God. Then he brings Abraham to God. He blesses God on Abraham's behalf when he says, blessed be God who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek shows us that at its heart, priesthood is about connecting heaven and earth. It's about bringing God to people and bringing people to God. So think about what's going on here. Way before the temple existed, way before Aaron was born, way before any of the old covenant of the law, there was this king priest who came first and who was superior to all of that because Abraham tithed to him and you only tithe to those superior to you. 
By linking the coming Messiah to Melchizedek instead of Aaron, David is prophetically saying salvation is ultimately not going to come through the old covenant of the law. It's not going to come through Aaron. It's going to come through another priest, Jesus. Jesus is like Melchizedek in two ways, as the author of Hebrews helps us understand. First of all, Jesus is a priest superior to Aaron. In order to connect a holy God with sinful people, Aaron had to offer animal sacrifices, and he needed to do it over and over again. But when Jesus came as our priest, he gave his own life as a sacrifice for our sins, and he did it once and for all. We don't have to keep sacrificing. Secondly, like Melchizedek, Jesus is a priest forever. So one thing you have to understand about Genesis is that everyone who was anyone has a genealogy. So the fact that Melchizedek does this pop-up and ghost thing, the fact that we don't know anything about his mother or father or birth or death is incredibly significant. It's like how parents of young children feel when the house goes suddenly quiet. When there's normally a lot of baseline noise, sudden silence usually means there's something worth investigating. The silence on Melchizedek's genealogy is significant. It is a symbolic statement that he is a priest who is without birth or death, who lives forever. Aaron and every other human priest after him dies. But as Psalm 110 says, Jesus is a priest forever. Hebrews 7 says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, there's the mediating priest role, since he always lives to make intercession, present tense, for them. This is an aspect of Jesus we don't always think a lot about. We tend to think of Jesus' work in the past tense. He came to earth for us. He died for us. What we forget is that Jesus is still presently and actively interceding on our behalf before God. This does not mean that his work on the cross was incomplete in any way. We are completely justified by Jesus' death for us. There's nothing that can add to that. So what does it mean then that Jesus continues to intercede? I don't really know for sure. The New Testament doesn't give us a lot of technical details. The best technical answer I've read, and this is by Dane Ortland, is that Jesus continues to bring his atoning work before God on our behalf in a moment-by-moment -moment way as that work is being applied to our lives. But the more I've thought about it, the more I feel like the point is not really to have a technical understanding of what's going on, the point is simply to know that Jesus' heart is with us and he's pleading for us in a personal and ongoing way. Maybe the simplest way of putting it is that Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is praying for us. Our swim team takes cheering very seriously. I don't know if different sports have their own cheer sounds, but in swim, the cheer sounds something like, 
ooh, ooh, or shouts of like, pull, pull, like usually time so that the swimmer can hear it when their head is out of the water. That's what's going on in this photo. One of our boys is pulling in for the turn at the wall, and his teammates are shouting at the top of their lungs as close to his ears as they possibly can. I used to cheer harder until one day one of our kids said, oh, you cheered? I can't hear anything when I'm under the water. <laughs> but that doesn't seem to phase these kids. And the interesting thing is when someone on their team is way ahead of everyone else, like they're clearly going to win. There's no question at all about their victory. The kids don't sit back and take a rest. They're not like, oh, they're going to win anyway. No need to do anything they actually cheer all the harder because they care about their teammate, because they themselves know what it's like to be pulling that water as fast and hard as you can, trying to last to the finish. Our salvation is secure because of Jesus' death. There's no question about what will happen when we get to the finish line. But that doesn't mean Jesus just sits back and watches. He's walked on this earth. He knows what life is like here. He loves each of us personally so much. And so sitting there at the right hand of God, Jesus is pleading on our behalf. His intercession is all the more effective because he's doing it from a position of power and privilege. That's why it's important that he's not just a priest, but a king priest, a royal priest. Jesus intercedes for us. He did it yesterday, he does it today, and he will continue doing it forever. And that is an incredibly comforting and encouraging truth. So we've seen that Melchizedek is a king priest who points to Jesus as a priest who is superior to Aaron because he made a sacrifice once and for all, and as a priest who lives forever to intercede for us. Secondly, what is our response to all of this? So what does priesthood mean for us? One of the things that Melchizedek shows us through the almost symbolic way that he occupies the role of priest is that priesthood is not just some one-and-done box that gets checked off. It's a role which we as humans have been created to inhabit. And you can actually trace this from the beginning of the Bible to its end. A lot of people have noticed that the Garden of Eden has similarities to the temple. There's the entrance in the east, the guarding cherubim, similar tree and gold and oinks features, and the duties given to Adam and Eve to guard and keep the garden are the same words used later to describe the duties of the priests in the temple. God created humans to be royal priests, to be bearers of his image to the world and to care for and keep the world in a way that connects it to God's purposes. So priesthood starts at creation, where we see Melchizedek, and then we see Melchizedek, the royal priest. Then we see David in Psalm 110, bridging Melchizedek to Jesus, the perfect royal priest. The story ends in Revelation with a vision of God's people in a heavenly city that has the dimensions of a perfect cube, and there's only one other perfect cube in the Bible. The Holy of Holies, the innermost room of the temple where God's presence resides. The story begins in a temple, and it ends in a temple where we too will be priests 
forever. So priesthood is not just a box that gets checked off. It's a trajectory that runs through all of Scripture. And just like Melchizedek and just like Jesus, we are a part of that story too. We are part of the story between Jesus and Revelation because while Jesus ascended to God's right hand, we remain here on earth as priests The Bible says that our bodies are temples, that God dwells in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And 1 Peter says we are to be a royal priesthood, that we may proclaim the excellencies of God. We are a connection point between heaven and earth in the same way Melchizedek was. We bring God to people and we bring people to God. That's what we do when we live as priests. First, we bring God to people. In his book on parenting, Paul Tripp, who is a pastor and father of four, says that there is one word that best describes what a parent is. And that word is ambassador. He writes, the only thing an ambassador does if he's interested in keeping his job is to faithfully represent the message, methods, and character of the leader who has sent him. Paul Tripp contrasts ownership parenting and ambassador parenting. Ownership parenting is driven by what we want our children to be and what we want them to give us in return. Most of us wouldn't say it like that, but often that's how we actually function. Ambassador parenting recognizes that our children don't belong to us, but to God. And therefore, parenting is not about what we want for our children or from our children, but about what God in his grace is doing through us in our children. And I think that applies to everything in life. As priests, We are ambassadors. We are citizens of heaven who represent God here on foreign soil. There is nothing in life that we truly own. There's nothing we can bring with us to heaven when we die. The point of our time here on earth is not what we want for something or from something, but about what God in his grace is doing through us in something in our work, in our spouse, our communities, our families, our natural world. See, as priests, we are ambassadors. We represent God. We achieve his purposes and mediate his blessings in every sphere of our lives, and that is how we bring God to people. Sometimes this happens in one moment. Like, I'll know it's a moment. I'll be sitting down with one of my kids or with a friend who's sharing something really hard, or I'll be about to respond to a major situation, and I'll think, this is a priest moment. This person sitting in front of me, these people looking at my response, they know I'm a believer, and they may only have this one window into what God is like through my response. What is that one message I want them to hear? Sometimes this happens not in one moment, but in a million tedious moments. In the hospital, we have this term for things that medical students or interns get stuck doing, scut work. 
I actually looked up the formal definition to make sure it was something okay to say in a sermon and read that scut work is medical slang for the non-clinical yet essential tasks that do not require a doctor's degree or expertise. Here's another definition I found. Work that is boring, makes you feel tired, and that people do not have a high opinion of. Thank you, Cambridge University, for that definition. <laughs> On the wards, we all know what scut work is. It's putting in the orders, filling out the discharge paperwork, reconciling the medication list, and so on. Scut work is the routine, menial stuff we have to do in order to make the more important clinical things happen. And you know, whatever profession you're in, in whatever sphere God has made you a priest, there's scut work. It's tiring, it's repetitive, it's largely unseen. But of all the offices in the Old Testament, king, prophet, priest, sage, it was probably the priests who had the most scut work. They had to keep track of all the laws and all the regulations about disease. They had to upkeep the temple, pack and unpack items whenever they traveled. It's just what it took to bring God to earth. And that can be true of our work as priests too. Even the tedious things can be holy, can be done unto God as a way of mediating his blessings to the world. Sometimes it helps to sort of tag your day with reminders of that. That's why, taped on top of our laundry machine, is a copy of a liturgy for laundering from the book Every Moment Holy, because it helps remind me that even doing laundry can be a priestly service, as we do a lot of laundry in our house. Every time I scrub in for surgery, it's a cue for me to take that moment to pray for the patient on the table. My dad used to do this thing where every time we were leaving the house for a while, he'd lay his hand on our head and say, Esther, you are God's beloved, on you his favor rests. And that was his way of, bringing, of being a priest to us at transition points in our life. As priests, we bring God to earth. We live as his representatives on foreign soil in both big and small moments. Secondly, as priests, we don't just bring God to people, we bring people to God. Many of us think of priests in ancient Israel as offering sacrifices in the temple, but they actually did a lot more than that. They taught the law to people, they discerned God's will for people, they dealt with the sick, they spoke blessings over people. Jesus' priestly activity on earth also wasn't just limited to sacrificing his life on the cross. During his ministry, he prayed for his believers and his followers. He brought their concerns before God. He taught the law. He shared God's will. He healed the sick so they could be restored to worship. Jesus actively brought people to God. And as priests, we are to do the same. We are to intercede for each other's concerns and prayer. We are to bless God on each other's behalf, like Melchizedek did for Abraham. We are to help discern God's will for the body of believers. We are to bring healing. We are to speak blessing. We are always to be bringing others to the metaphorical altar of God's presence. And we do this not only for individuals, but for our church, for our communities, for our country and countries around the world. This is something we are to be intentional about as people who live as priests in this world. How are you interceding for others? 
Psalm 110 ends with the line, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. There's this feeling of refreshment, just like Melchizedek offered Abraham bread and wine, food and drink after a tiring battle. He will drink from the brook by the way. I love that phrase, by the way. Right there along the road, right there as we go through our journeys, God refreshes us and we find strength to lift our heads. May we be encouraged today by the fact that Jesus gave his life for us once and for all, and by the knowledge that he is praying for us. May God give us the unexpected refreshments and strength that we need to be priests who bring God to others and bring others before God this week. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that, Jesus, you are not the kind of king to just stay on your throne, but you left your throne, you put your crown aside to come on earth and live as a priest among us, healing us, restoring us to cleanliness through all of your works and words and actions, but especially through your death on the cross. God, I pray that you would give us this vision of what it means to connect heaven and earth, to be the window to you that other people see as we go about all of the activities of our life, be they big moments or just small repetitive things that we don't even think anyone's seeing, but you see them, God. You see them. Jesus, thank you for interceding for us moment by moment. Thank you that we can call on you. We can trust in you to be doing that for us. And give us a heart that wants to intercede for other people, that knows you so well and sees other people so well, that we know how to do that. We thank you for this church, for having others to walk with in this journey. Refresh us moment by moment through this week. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Amen.